Hey, Tom. Hey, Michael. Uh, so I'm uh, working on releasing part two of your episode on the photo show. And I thought okay. it would be nice for um, listeners to hear a little bit about uh, what you just came back from, which was in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, you were there with a photographer, Andre Leon. Yes. What was that all about? Well, last year in October, I was in Istanbul at the Istanbul Photo Festival. I guess that's what it was called. And there were a series of workshops, portfolio reviews, uh, slide talks. I gave one of them. The truth is there was a lot of hanging out. While I was hanging out one day, in, in fact, you have to try to picture this as a huge terrace on the second or third floor of a university building, an outdoor terrace, and there were tables set up, and you look out over the Bosphorus, and it's just absolutely beautiful. Well, one day I got there around lunchtime, and this new guy um, was sitting around a table with some of the people I knew, talking in a really animated way, and it was Andre Leon, and He's what we call either a war photographer, conflict photographer. And he was on his way to Libya and just stopping through. He wasn't there for the festival at all. Well, I sat down at the table and uh, almost immediately had a real connection with him. And, and he had one with me. And we ended up spending a lot of time together, maybe at that point a day and a half till he had to leave. And we talked about everything, photography, uh, politics, you name it. Well, then, about six months ago, in other words, six months after, he reached out to me and said he's been photographing in Brazil. And he is Brazilian, but he spent about 20 years mostly living in Europe and traveling around the world. And he returned to to Brazil, to Sao Paulo, and realized that there was a lot going on there that was related in some way to what he'd seen in his travels uh, in places of conflict. And he set out to do a photo project and found uh, a venue in Sao Paulo to exhibit it and found some, some money from the state and asked me if I would curate an exhibition. I wasn't sure at first because... Now, what do I know about any of these things? Hmm. I asked him to send me the pictures because I, I wasn't interested in curating something of pleasant photographs of Brazil or, or good photographs. Or, you know, I thought if, if there was some way I can make sense of what he was telling me, first in an email, then through a, a Skype conversation, then... I'd be very interested because I think he's the real thing. He's fascinating and he's committed and passionate. And he's someone who actually did put his life on the line uh, to be a photographer. Right. Uh, so, we, were, we spoke about him a little bit yesterday when we were at uh, the Steve, Stephen Kasher Gallery where your show is coming up. And uh, you, you, did, you told some harrowing stories of, of him facing real violence and, and even being struck or at least... a. Um, in the line of yeah, fire. Shot, no, it was shot. I mean, this is this is something that's been well documented. He's kind of a controversial figure in the in the field of war photography. I mean, he's not universally loved. I could say that. I don't think that's doing him any disrespect. He's 
is extremely opinionated and uh, and he's not um, averse to putting himself at risk. There's a New York Times video showing him uh, that he shot, showing the uh, the launching of a firing of a cannon that uh, is aimed improperly, hits a near wall, and the shrapnel ricochets and kills the people operating the the cannon. And he's right there. I mean, he's right there, and uh, the shrapnel whizzes by him and. Well, people can go can go look at that video. Yes, yes, you could find it yeah, pretty easily. Uh, in fact, John Carlo's writing an article about him, and hopefully, Vice will publish it, and uh, there'll be a link on on that article to the video. In any case, um, he did send them to me, and I was, you know, I was knocked out. They're they're ter- they were fantastic. Sometimes obvious, sometimes uh, confusing, and um, I agreed to give it a try, and I did. I I gave it a try, and um, I came up with a way to think about his photographs. That was the main thing, and so we had a series of uh, Skype conversations where I would show him what I was thinking and then asking for his critique. Uh, essentially, the first question is, what did I leave out that you think has to be in here? I decided on uh, knowing something about the space. I decided to break the work up into a group of five um, sections. Not that it worked out that way in the space at all, but in my mind, we could have 60 photographs, so five groups of 12, and that would be a way to, to... talk about them what how do we how does how do we start the exhibition well this group of 12 and then how do we uh what should be the first one in this group of 12 what should be in the middle how can we you know all right now let's go to the next group of 12 so how would that work uh what's the first one in that then we could figure out the last one in the first one and then we jumped all the way to the end. How do we how do we end this exhibition? How do you want to leave people? And so we did that. Then we went back to group three and did three and four. And it was it was a way to work long distance that was really efficient because as it evolved, there were things that he thought were really important, photographs that he thought were really important, but he realized that um maybe they were redundant. And so if something went in, then how would it come out and what section would lose it? And it ended up being an extremely uh, rewarding. It was fruitful, I could say that, because I think the exhibition looks great and feels great. And that was, you know, when I went down to the opening, uh, many people felt that way and said it, including the press. But it was a way for, for us to educate each other. So it's a show that has an important message and a big part of Andre's life. And I didn't think it would be respectful of the work or his effort just to say it looks better if it's if it's these pictures, if we were leaving something out. I mean, we couldn't leave anything out. And, of course, we wanted to have the economy and the to make it as emphatic as possible by not having pictures that, you know, nearly reinforced each other. 
some some of them are slightly contradictory, and yet um, because they're in a an exhibition all at once, they reinforce each other in ways that you might not have imagined. So they're they're pictures of a kind of edgy. What I want to say is he. He heard when he got back to Brazil that Brazil was at war with itself. So he wanted to see what that meant. So there aren't photographs of uh, Brazilian businessmen uh, walking down the street and then people living in favelas. It's not that. It's something more emphatic, but at the same time, more nuanced because it, it's it's personal. The work looks really personal. It feels personal. Oh, I think the best thing to do would be to to link to the show so so people could see those photos. And I, I think Andre Leon's tweeted out some installation photos, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He yeah, did. He's very good about it. Everyone is good at that but me. Everyone's uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> he did a great job of that. <laughs> And including y- tweeting pictures of me on the back of his Harley Davidson yes. uh, as we rode along. <laughs> Maybe I should include some of those. You've helped a lot of photographers edit and sequence work. Is this the first time you've done anything in this in this long distance kind of way? Well, yeah, it's it, well, it's two firsts. It's the first in a long distance way, and it's the first time I actually tried to wrap my brain around the idea of an exhibition, but the truth is, I think you could you could tell I did it the way I would do a book. In fact, I think the layout I gave him would work great as a book. As you were describing um, it, that's exactly what I thought of. It, it sounded like just the way you speak when you're laying out a book or helping someone else lay out a book. Yeah, well, that's that. I thought it had to be that. Now, once we did it and we we came up with two different sizes of the prints. I made it clear since the timing, I couldn't take enough time away from school to go down there and lay it out, that the timing would, would work out, that it would have to be put on the walls without me being there. And he has this, he had this great, really great woman named Maida who, uh, who did the actual layout on the wall. And they ended up stacking some pictures in a way that I couldn't imagine doing mostly because one of the walls in the in the diagram they provided would be impossible to hang pictures on. There, there were windows which were indicated, and I thought we'd hang between the windows. So even though it, it flows exactly the way I, I thought it should, it, it ended up working you know, better than I imagined it could, to be honest. Oh, about well, that's that. great. But that's because... He between Andre and Maida, they 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 knew what the thing was supposed to be about, and they they made it work that way. It's kind of crazy that I did it in the first place, but I I think it's important that we keep informing what we're doing. I I think I'm I'm better dealing with my students at Columbia, having gone to Sao Paulo and uh, doing a workshop down there, and it really um, energized me and. Uh, in a way, maybe maybe you said we were talking yesterday at the gallery. Maybe you remember talking at lunch. I, I feel even more fanatical about uh, how important this thing is. You know how people. I'm not sure. I don't want to say it. I, I guess I'm saying it backwards. I don't want to be critical, but there are places in the world where people have to be serious 
you know, my my anxiety is uh, places like New York, and I know there are other cities. It's not just New York where maybe where we're taking the role of being the artist to be something less serious than it should be. Right, and a trip outside of the United States, especially to to, to a place uh, perhaps like the Middle East or Brazil, or, or that can really bring that home. Yeah, no, absolutely, and uh, and so maybe not. Maybe I am a fanatic, but <laughs> I don't know what else we could be fanatical about that makes any sense. You know, mm-hmm. certainly not a political party or a club. No, um, no you have to. In some ways, you have to almost stay within what you have control over, right? right. And, and we can control our photography and, and the people we want to be with, with photography, but I don't know how much control we would have in politics. Yeah, well, I, you know, the control we have is to give ourselves to things outside of our comfort zone. You know, we have that in our power. We have the power to confuse ourselves and not accept without question what conventional wisdom or theories or party lines or any of those things. Right. You know, we, we have it in our power to stay confused and through our work to you know, try to come to something that's not confusing. But no, in other words, process. Well, uh, that's a, a great note to end on. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks again. Um, hey, did you get to fly uh, your uh, drone, your little... Not yet. I um, it's I, very hard, Michael. I try. Haven't though. <laughs> it's very hard. I, I maybe I have four or five seconds of controlled flight and then panic. Well, they they, oh. they did call it a, a training drone, so that's what we got to do. We got to train. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll be able to do all this great drone photography. <laughs> well, I I I think not on that one. Uh, But it it has amused my dog. Kino loves it. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Most of the time I was with Gary, I was with also with Todd and Paul, and, and mostly. And then a close runner-up, I was with Gary and Lee. Uh, and I spent time with Gary alone, but, and I've written about that in Double Take Magazine, but it was always waiting for people to come. Uh, anyone who finally arrived stayed with Gary until until uh, Gary was ready to go. No one walked away from Gary. He wanted to be with him every minute. But I also have to say, um, most of the time, it was like uh, if, you, if you had a camera on me, I would look like I was at a tennis match <laughs> because I'd look at Gary, I'd look at Lee, I'd look at Gary, I'd look at Lee, i look at Gary, i look at Todd. And very often they were, Todd always argued with Gary, and I'd look back and forth, back and forth with nothing to add. What, what I did was change the subject. <laughs> I'll call Todd and tell him this. I changed the subject by making someone look ridiculous <laughs> and everyone laugh. And and that was the the thing that that stopped. <laughs> I was there to listen. I was. I have to say, I've I've led a reverent uh, life in photography. I I can't believe uh, how great, but you know, the accomplishments of so many photographers. I'm shocked. 
And we were talking about Lee Friedlander. I don't know if we ever said Lee's full name. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Lee Norman Friedlander. <laughs> no, no, I just that is his full name. Yeah, yeah. Middle name is Norman. I wanted but, to mention it for the listeners. Oh, yeah. Look, in in some ways, there's no one that's ever going to look at my photographs and not put Lee as you know maybe the first person that comes to mind. If you have to think of me and another photographer. Don't listen to anything I say. Look at what I've done. And I don't want to move away from it. It is what it is. It just, there's reasons for that, that, um, you know, some of them are completely superficial and some of them have to do with uh, various affections that, you know, coincidentally, you know, by the, what is it? Luck of the draw, toss of the dice, you know, we, we have. But I think it's, you know, I could talk about Gary Winogrand all day, but if you look at the pictures, you know, let's face it, that's the, my closest uh, relative. Although you're you're working on a project right now that might put you a little closer to Gary, right? I thought so. Mm-hmm. I really thought it would. I'm actually... Uh, I used the word project, sorry. You were, you're no, photographing no, no. in a way right no, now. No, no, yeah, that's a yeah. project. I mean, we can't get away from it. We. I wish you were a better word, but I've never found one. So I can't give you a hard time. I default to it. I, Wait, it's on record. He said he can't give you a hard time. Yeah. <laughs> about that. About that. About that. Because like, I, editing, I, editing. <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, I'm trying to get closer to Gary, let's say, and closer to a way that Gary worked. You know, I consider myself a method photographer. I, When I do something, I, I become the person that could do it. So architectural photography or photographing in the churches, I have to, it's like acting. It's exactly like acting. You have to put yourself in a, in a trance of some kind. And I realized recently that I've tried to do all these things. For instance, Gary didn't really do landscapes. I did landscapes. We didn't lead did landscapes. But I wanted to this is after working on the 1988 retrospective and looking at 300,000 individual Winogrand images, right? I, I have to use the word images because they're con- pictures on a contact sheet, not prints. Hmm. I edited those, you know, the unfinished contact sheets with John and later Todd joined us. For you, was that the second time you took a, a really long, hard look at, at the work that was unedited of Gary's? No, that was the first one. That's the 88. Right, okay. Then Leo Rubenfein recently did another, the second Winogrand retrospective. And just because Leo has one of the most generous spirits of anyone in photography, Leo invited me to look at what he was doing, to comment on what he was doing. And I mean, a lot of people wouldn't do that, but Leo wanted to share the experience. And I can't say that I had a major um, impact, but I uh, on on that exhibition. And anyway, great people did it, but they also great people allowed me to to weigh in here or there. It, and I flew out to San Francisco to see the exhibition, and I ended up even going to Paris for the exhibition. But I saw it in New York, and. In New York, something struck me that never did before. After all this Winogrand in my life, after photograph, you know, I'd walk down the street with Gary when he photographed for years. I never had my camera because I left my camera in Brooklyn. But or even when Gary came to Brooklyn, 
all of a sudden it occurred to me the thing I never did was to photograph while I was moving. I photographed people moving. I photographed people standing still. I've, I've directed people. I've allowed them to do what they want. I've done all these things, except it never occurred to me to see to see what would change, you know, and I've been, uh, I'm addicted to that mm-hmm. now. So I would like to say that I'm, I'm going right after uh, Gary Winogrand, but last Sunday I saw a dummy of a book Lee just made of his early street photography that he never showed anyone. And I'm right back there. <laughs> 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 I wanted to kill him. And, the the dummy of this book it's not in the finished form he has he claims he has more editing to do and i and frankly i think it could be improved with a little editing but i don't know if he'll edit the way i would want it's one of the most memorable experiences i've ever had in photography seeing the work i just saw i had this great experience on sunday of having my son standing right next to me and as i turned the pages they're all two page spreads I couldn't help myself. I was thinking out loud and I'm looking at my son's grandfather's pictures and I was I felt like I was you know trying to explain to him who his grandfather. I mean he has his own, but I didn't mean to do it. I've never talked about Lee's pictures in front of Lee before. Lee was standing right there too, but I was overwhelmed and uh uh when I left that day, I, I said to Lee, I said, Lee, I'm never going to forget this day for the rest of my life. That's how great I think this work is. It's just great. And here I am trying to do something like that myself, thinking of Gary, and then I had to go and see Lee again. Now, one thing we haven't touched on, or we've mentioned names of things, and we're pushing outside the project book, uh, project name, but what about we could talk about books and monographs, right? So a large part of... Uh, what you do is create these books, and now you've got this new one coming out, October 29th, which you hinted out in the Vale of Kashmir. Uh, also, The Waters of Our Time has a second edition coming out, a hardcover edition. You've got several book projects already lined up in book form, already ready to go. Yeah. And um, at what point from these early days of teaching I, I did this idea even of the book uh, come to that this is the thing you were going to do. I know you made the limited edition uh, Brooklyn Gardens and Serious Studies, but then at some point with Found in Brooklyn and moving forward, it really books became uh, just you know so essential and critical to the work you're making. We began this thing talking about the Laurel Book Center and mm. books. I, 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 I knew photographs more in books than even magazines. My family, we never got any magazines. There were no magazines. I I knew photography existed uh, because I took pictures out the window uh, while I was recuperating from a brain injury. And, <laughs> we, we actually never finished that story. That's, uh, that was well, part of uh, how yeah, you got into that's it. That's how that's how <laughs> I ended up at the library. I had a brain injury. My brother, you know, came by with a camera that he ultimately allowed me to buy from him and I photographed looking out the window because I was immobilized. I wasn't allowed to move. But I went right to a bookstore and there were books and I never thought of anything else. There were no galleries. I didn't get to the Museum of Art and Art for quite a while after that. I didn't even know they had photographs in the Museum of Art and Art and I never had any reason to go there. 
I remember very clearly there was a school trip in junior high school, but you had to bring $3 in or something, and my mother wouldn't give it to me. So I sat in the empty classroom. You want to feel bad? <laughs> I sat in the empty classroom while the whole class was on a school trip. Anyway, so, you know, I, I, I didn't... who I. Didn't even imagine they'd be in a museum or a, or a gallery. Whoever went to think I saw an art gallery, I didn't even know they existed. I, I didn't even know people owned art or whatever. So it was it was book. Of course, there were there were books. There were picture books that I saw because of a magazine about a how to magazine, how mm. to take your own pictures. It wasn't there weren't a lot of portfolios in it. Um, so. I remember this for many years after this, the uh, any mention of photography in the New York Times and arts and leisure section was in the camera section, right next to stamp collecting. There was no great discussion about photography. Someone could point out, you know, some a, a mention of Walker Evans or whatever, but it's it, it was almost non-existent, really. That that this whole other thing. This I don't want to call it a world. I call it an enterprise of selling photographs for money, for you know real money, serious money. That comes much later. I didn't leave Wall Street because I thought someone would buy a photograph. Never even imagined it. I did leave Wall Street because I thought I would be able to take pictures and you know had these books building up. You know, building up, building up. There was another place called the Ruby. Uh, book center was on Chamber Street, and they sold remaindered magazines, you know, returns, and uh, remaindered books. And I bought, and I still have it. It's right behind me. I bought the um, the uh, Lartigue Diary book. I have I have a lot of books that I bought uh, from Ruby. Ruby is the other one. So when I got back to Wall Street. They insisted that I take a lunch break. I never generally when you're a trader, there's no lunch because I would be exhausted uh, quickly. So I'd walk from the trading floor up to Chamber Street and and buy books. I was always carrying books home. Uh, I, I have most of them, but some of them got left behind. I mean, I bought whatever they had. So. Yeah, I mean, look, look what Lee did. Nineteen seventy, uh, he does this book, self portrait. He self publishes self portrait because that's who else was going to do it? Winogrand has, and they're both both self portrait and um, the animals. The little paperback books. There were no hardcovers. They were little paperback books, and Lee would write letters to bookstores, and well, Maria did. And uh, they'd fill orders. They'd ship them from their home. The, the Marie, Marie Lee's wife. Yeah, yeah. But that's what it was. It was so. Uh, I leave Wall Street in seventy one, nineteen eighty. I make my first uh, limited edition book. By then, there were galleries, but I wouldn't even, you know, the like galleries. I wouldn't even imagine that I'd make you know, anyone want to buy one of my pictures. Why would they? I didn't. I was in an exhibition in seventy eight for people who got the New York State Council for the Arts Grant. Lee is in it, Gary's in it. I, I have the price list here somewhere. A Friedlander was $250. You know, my picture was $100. Uh, Gary's, I think, were $300 because they were slightly bigger. But I, what I always point out, you know, it was at the Soho Center for Visual Arts. What I always point out is not one person sold the print. No one. 
you know, we, we, when we had to come to pick him up, we were all there picking him up, <laughs> and that was it. I have a picture of myself that you should put on, if you want a picture, sure. from, hold on, hold on. Oh, the slide, I, right? It's, oh, it's, you have it here. It should. It's oh, a, that's Sonia Moskowitz. Sonia Moskowitz, who was uh, Todd's um, girlfriend at the time, took a picture of me in front of my pictures. Oh, we'll uh, use that. Yeah, we'll use that for the show. Yeah, that's me. In any case... Um, so you I, were thinking of books this the whole that's, time. That's yeah. the only thing. Look, that, that's the only thing I was thinking of. I didn't have... Uh, I never did commercial work. Other people were pretty busy doing that. Mm-hmm. And in 1980, I still hadn't taught. Um, I was doing everything I could do to make a living and build this uh, little house up to be... A factory to be a factory to, so that I could keep working. I, you know, photograph. I want to photograph and I want to look at what I've done. I want to make decisions and I want to participate in my culture as it's happening. I, I didn't, I didn't want to be discovered after I died or I, I wanted to be part of it. And you know, obviously, photography's moved in all different directions, but I've pretty much stay true to what what I set out to do. Yeah, one thing I was thinking about um as as these uh, each monograph comes along that you know the structure of those books is maybe they're becoming more and more complicated, I'm not sure, but but like thinking of Found in Brooklyn and thinking about the waters of our time and thinking about this 90s book that you've also got coming out soon. In the in that sense those pictures were made as part of this going out in the world and making photographs and taking a lunch break and keep photographing and doing all that. But then a lot of these, the later books, uh, I think you're, while you're photographing, you're already thinking of the structure of the book and it's altering the kind of photographs that you're making. You know, I was very briefly along with you with doing uh, house calls with William Carlos Williams, which had a structure to it based on thinking of the book, and then certainly with the Veil of Cashmere, with the strips at the bottom yeah, and everything. Yeah, you were quite a lot, actually. Yeah, and so I, I know we had conversations about what, even before you made a book dummy, like, oh, I'm going to photograph this, I'm imagining that's going to be this thing, and, and, and things changing over time. Yeah, listen, I, I those those books, and Michael, you were with me a lot. Yeah, actually, and, and, so in this room, Kai, Kai and I had have spent quite a bit of time photographing with you. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it. I think photography should happen in public, and you should bring people along. And what I learned from uh, my mother's cooking, she could never tell me, but I watched her, the witch that she was. <laughs> and uh, may she rest in know, peace. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and well, yeah, what I learned from Gary never had to tell me, and or Todd, or yeah, or. Lee, I've been with Lee quite a lot. I mean, you pick things up. That's what you're supposed to do. It's not all instructional, but rather, I mean, you use the word uh, inspire, and, and that's a word that people are afraid to to uh, articulate. We're, we're inspired in many ways, and you don't have to be inspired because of an outcome. You could be inspired by a process, let's say. But yes, the Found in Brooklyn is the first book, and it's it was completely inspired by Helen Levitt's book, uh, Way of Seeing. In fact, it's the exact same size as that book. They each have their own 
story, which may or may not make any sense to anyone. I don't want to say something's good because there's some story that goes with it, but certainly every every single one of them has a structure to make it a book. You know, to make the book itself has its own gravity. It's pulling it's pulling a viewer this way or that way. So there, so there's that. But I could say, you know, going back to um, let's say enduring justice. Mm-hmm. As I was shooting that, now this is just stupid, right? <laughs> I, as I was shooting, and I thought, you know what? I I probably I'm gonna have. Uh, more people looking one way than another way in the end. Now what am I going to do? It's going to be a picture of a book looking like a weather vane. <laughs> so I, uh, I, I was thinking of movies a lot back then because I was working with uh, Michael Almereda on uh, that uh, Another Girl on Another Planet and this other thing. But anyway... So I I thought of coverage, you know, like when you're filming, you have right. coverage. So mm. when I could, mm. I got people to you know move someplace else and look the other way. So in case, if, if I wanted them in the book, mm. I could imagine having you know a left and a right, or not both in the same book. But you know, if I needed a, someone looking right, uh, and that's how I laid the book out. The book moves. Uh, let's say starting left. I don't know if it does, but then looking straight on and then right. And it keeps, if you f- use, do that book like a flip book, you'll see heads turning left, right, left, right, mm-hmm. left, right, left, right. Did, did you do a similar thing with with higher ground? Because I know that it's even people somewhat off in the distance that you've directed, right? Higher ground. I'm, I'm no. sorry, in Sunset Park. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sunset Park, Sunset Park yeah. is entirely directed, but I never thought I was going to stop shooting that when mm-hmm. I did. So, you know, that book was, was once I was, you know, kind of pushed out of, of shooting it for various reasons, um, I had three summers, and I had to finally look at it. And, you know, it's been really liberating. I have pictures that I shot in the, in the pool in the 90s book that, uh, that Kai mentioned that couldn't make it into... Hmm. Sunset Park. They weren't right for that book, but they they fit perfectly in in the the new summing up of the nineties. Hmm. So I don't know if I answered the question, but I'm more interested in the life of a book after someone owns it than ever. You know, this in in the waters of our time, and that has to do with a lot of things. First of all, it has to do with uh, the price. I want my books to be cheap. I, of course, the highest quality humanly possible. Uh, but and, and they are, for the most part, they've all been incredibly affordable, and you can get them on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, uh, the Waters book, the decision to buy a book, I don't want the decision to be, do I buy this book or do I buy a car? I want it to be, <laughs> do I buy this book or do I buy a magazine or two? That's It's more like that. It's uh, So... That's the life afterwards. If you make something that's that's precious, then it gets you know displayed as an heirloom. I want I, the thing I like the best is when they're they're worn. When you could see people. I you know, I met someone who I didn't know who who said, uh, "Oh, you know, you're Tom Rome, blah blah blah. I really loved that book, uh, The Wars of Time." So you but you know what you say? Say, so, "Oh, thank you." You know, thanks for. And she said, no, no, I mean, 
I have it right here in my purse. You know, I, I carry it around with me because sometimes I'm on the subway. And that, to me, is like, you know, better than winning an Academy that, Award or something. Wasn't that exactly what you wanted for that book? I yeah. mean, you modeled the size of that book after the Sweet Fly Paper of Life. And, yeah. and that's what, the way you thought of that book, a book you would stick in your pocket or your bag or, yeah. and have with I, you. I want it to be something that's casual. And if, look, if you lose it, buy another one. You know, it's not, you shouldn't be heartbroken. Yeah, I also think you should, you should give books away. If you really like it, give it away. Although it did sell out, and then people were yes. trying to sell them on Amazon for hundreds of dollars yeah, or something. I, yeah, who knows if any, ever, with those. Yeah. if any of them ever sold. I mean, that, yeah. that's crazy. But yeah. my students have benefited greatly from you wanting me to give them your book. Yeah, that's, it, it should be, uh, should be passed, passed along. When, when Anibal was doing the, uh, Anibal Pella was doing the uh, teaching a class up at Fordham, up in Rose Hill, I guess it is, you know, I was able to help him out with some copies of uh, of uh, Found in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's the kind of book it is. You look, anyone can look at that book and think, I could do that. I not, I mean, I could do that because the scale of it. You know, I I could stay in my neighborhood. I could stay in my city. I could stay. I'm not saying people say I could do that and it'll be just as good or better or whatever it's only as good as it's useful uh and if someone can make it more useful to themselves by taking their own pictures that's great there was a trend i noticed i think i was paying attention to it maybe in 2004 that all these books were coming out and the thing they had in common was the photographer got access to a place that was difficult to get to like that they probably had to do a lot of work to get to and so you you looked at the book because you got to see someplace you wouldn't get to see otherwise. And, you know, even though a lot of your books required the access of, you know, you persisting to make it happen, there isn't this idea that it's the, this exotic place that only, you know, only you could find. And so there is an accessibility to it that I think people can find inspiring that you, you know, you often say in talks, like, this picture was made a block from my house. This was made in my backyard. This is my neighbor's backyard. That you're not having to travel all over the world. You're not having to come up with a big budget or, or you know petition for more money in order to make something. You just go out and make it. Right. Take the yeah. fucking photographs, as you often say. <laughs> yeah. Look, it's you know, In the end, there are there are a number of ways to to a- approach the the subject. Of course, you know, take the picture and. And it, it could be a lack of, you know, on one hand, you could say, I, I, I have a lack of uh, imagination. On the other hand, I, I'm in awe of my surroundings, you know, wherever I go. So why, and I never had a lot of money, so why spend a lot of money to go someplace? Oh, I don't know. It's actually, the truth of the matter is, Kai, it's, uh, it's a more deeply philosophical question. Why? You know, why is the picture made? All right. Why is the book made? Why? Why? And let's face it, a lot of a lot of photo books are made because you know, people want, you know, they'll say, I want to put on record or, you know, there's, there's a, a, an enormous potential for vanity. There's an, an enormous potential for wanting the book to be a stand-in for yourself, you know, I, how do I say it? You know, I, I, one of the things I talk about in teaching is, you know, is music, you know, popular music. I'm not talking about the 
Jupiter Symphony. I'm talking about popular music. It used to be when people fell in love, uh, they'd have a song. They'd always say, oh, they're playing our song or the first song at their wedding. People had a song. And when they, when, when you had a song, you weren't thinking of some guy smoking a cigar, writing it, you know, like uh, Doc Palmas, you know, great songwriter. You were thinking about yourself. That was mine. It was my song. So I want my books to be books that people cleave to, that they they want as their life story. And so I have a funny story about that that you probably won't use. But um, <laughs> Steve, Steve Buscemi, who, you know, I was did this film thing... Uh, on the set of Animal Factory, and I ended up doing the prison book. Well, one day, uh, Anna and I uh, bumped into his wife, Joe, and she's great. She's an artist in her own right. And she said, I have a funny story I have to tell you. She said, Steve went out today to buy his brother a birthday present, and he went to a bookstore, and he came back with this book, and he said, you've got to see this book. You're going to love these pictures. You've got to see it. And she thought, she said, I, I thought he was joking. And he shoves it because he's shoving it under my face. And she said, you really don't know? That's that's Tommy Roma's book. It was found in Brooklyn. Well, if you look at the book, you'll know why. You know, I did that cover. My my name is very, very tiny on the cover of the, that book. And, I ta- and if you look at uh, Come Sunday, I insisted on the cover of that, of making my name smaller and Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s name bigger. I, I don't, what's the expectation? Are people going to buy a book because my name is on it? No. They're going to buy it because they have a reason to buy it. The The book should advertise itself. Show and tell looks like a children's book. You know, On Three Pillars looks like uh, an architectural book. and The design of it is architectural, for crying out loud. They're supposed to look like what they are. And people are supposed to, they're meant to, anyway, own it because it becomes part of their story. You know, like I only recently was reintroduced to um, Frenny and Zoe. Leo Rubenfein said, when was the last time you read Frenny and Zoe? And I had it on my bookshelf, a hardcover version. I said, oh God, I don't even remember. Anyway, I I, I took it on one of my trips last year and I... I uh, started reading it in the airport, and I finished it on the plane. I was crying my eyes out on the plane. That's my Franny and Zoe. I'm not thinking of Salinger and his story, and who cares? It's Well, that's what I'm... That, that's a big ambition. I'm not being humble, believe me. I'm, I happen not to be a humble person, <laughs> but, but I have a huge ambition that the book will matter to anyone else, and, and hopefully a lot more than than one. As, as part of their own life story. Right, the ambition is for the books, not for the name Thomas Roma to be on everyone's lips. I changed my name four times. Yeah. I, <laughs> I changed my name again, that one. <laughs> <laughs> I have to go back with a, a Sharpie and, and stickers. On the... <laughs> Let's talk about some uh, current projects. You have some books coming out. Uh, in fact, uh, how many books do you have published right now? Okay, so I make a distinction for monographs of unique bodies of work. So they're counting the new one in the Vale of Kashmir, there were 14. And 14, which puts it over a thousand individual photographs in print. I also have a book that I like a lot, 
and I'm so happy to have it. Susan Kazmarek did it called Pictures for Books, and it's it's a collection, a beautifully printed collection, uh, and a, a thoughtfully assembled collection of four bodies of work. And that's kind of fun to have. I mean, I didn't, I, I never wanted it. I wouldn't do it for myself, but... Um, it's nice that someone else came along and said, "Wait a minute, we could we could do this." And there was a show attached to that book. Yeah, that yeah. was an exhibition at the Wallach Center at uh, at Columbia University. Yeah, I think it's interesting that when you had your retrospective at ICP, that you didn't want to use that as an opportunity to have like a retrospective type book. Instead, you used that as an opportunity to publish a new book. Yeah, that's what I <laughs> yeah. did. I, I mean, that's crazy. That, that's completely crazy to do that, yeah. right? Yeah, I you was, go see that. It's like, oh, here's the book. It's not not what you're, it's not the retrospective book. It's a new body of work. Yeah, I, I because I wanted to separate the book from the exhibition. So, look, I think a number of things, uh, you know, contribute to doing something else so in the beginning there's nothing right you know you have and you're going around you're feeling the world you know what what is the world for me what what's speaking to me right and so uh, found in brooklyn is that and so i did that and i and and i'm glad i got that out of the way robert frost published his his first book i think he was 39 years old and his first book was called a boy's will and it was poetry that he wrote when he was in his early 20s. You have to get the first one out there. If you go from a boy's world to north of Boston, what a giant, what a huge leap. But so I, I had great examples, you know. So when you get something out there, you want to get it out. Out, but not out of the way, all right? So in a way, there's when you do that, there's no turning back. I can't say I'm not the person who wandered around said streets in Brooklyn looking at said broken trees and said girls and said boys and whatever. I did that, you know. Um, so then you say, what else could I do? What, what could I do? You know, everyone starts this thing, this creative life. You know, how could I say it? People begin a creative life whether they know it or not because of a wound because they've been thought of as an exception, exception in the classroom, exception in their family, some kind of exception. Yeah, it could be anything from a limp to being having the wrong religion or, or ethnicity. Something turns turns someone into being thoughtful, you know. Something that makes them feel separated. Yeah. So and and therefore have something to say. Everyone else is talking about whatever they're talking about, they all know it, but you say, wait a minute, I know this other thing. I, you know, I know this other thing. So one way to characterize it is a feeling, and this is, you know, a lot of people will say that's not true, but a feeling of powerlessness. And then as you learn to write poetry, you learn because poetry is teaching you, or you learn to photograph because photography is teaching you, you're not so powerless anymore. All of a sudden, now you could do stuff. So you say, all right, wow, I could do this. Now what do I do? What do I do with this? You know, first you feed yourself. And you say, wait a minute, let me look around. What else could I do? So you wonder. You, you try these different things. That's what Come Sunday was. Come Sunday was you know, my thinking, oh, my heavens. You know, Raghavir Singh told me, a great photographer, that 
I have the ability to talk to strangers. He said, Tommy, you could talk to strangers. And he says, uh, you should you should use that in your photographs more. Well, if you look at the photographs before Raggedy said that, I'm wandering around trying not to cause suspicion or to kick up any leaves, uh, you know, trying to leave the place the way I found it. And then after Ragabeer, I'm going out and uh, engaging people and making photographs because of that ability that I had. I didn't know I had. I mean, I knew I had it. I didn't know what would... Translate to photography. Yeah. 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 So, So that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to do things now... I'm, yeah, I'm looking around now, and I'm trying to I'm trying to do things to stay in the world. You know, I'm, when I when I leave the house, why do I leave the house? You know, what am I looking for? What do I need? You know, I'm I'm 65 years old now. I I um, you know, sometimes I scratch my head and say, how did I how did I get here? And uh, what does the world look like to me? Photographed. You know, how am I going to make another black and white photograph? I mean, the truth of the matter is I'm starving. I'm not just hungry. Like when I was young, I was hungry for it. Now I'm starving. I'm absolutely starving. I, I, uh, I need it more than ever. That's interesting. I mean, in in the past, you've mentioned the idea of slowing down, or I'm going to do this many books and things like that. But it doesn't seem like that's coming. It seems like you you really want to keep going. You know what that was when I when I was, when I was talking like that, I was trying to deflect and protect myself from being disappointed. I had no idea. You have no idea what what it's going to feel like the next time, and the next time, and the next time. I know that there's more. I don't know what the more is. I haven't the vaguest idea. But yesterday, last night, I, I had some people over for dinner, and my son barged in on it. He's 24 years old, six feet tall. And by the time he was ready to leave, we were wrestling. Because he, he you know, from the time he was little, he'd pretend to hit me. I'd grab his hand, twist his arm around, and I would always look at him and say, not yet. <laughs> and I have to say, I can still hold my own. He can't beat me yet. Oh, I thought you were going to say now. <laughs> no, 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 no. In fact, I dislocated my thumb a few months ago. And when he grabbed my hand, he grabbed my thumb. And I said, I said, oh, I, that's, that's my bad thumb. And he said, I'm sorry. And as soon as he let go, I punched him in the ribs. <laughs> 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 so of course we're talking about Giancarlo Roma who who worked with you at a very young age on show and tell yeah. and then worked with you again on Waters of Our Time. Yeah. And has this great website called uh com, uh where you can buy rare signed Lee Friedlander books. I throw a plug in you can cut that out. Go ahead. No, um, no, it's fine. <laughs> um I follow that on Instagram. Yeah, I uh he's you know, he's getting an amazing education a photo education by dealing with these books in a way that he can never get from looking at my books because I'm his father. You, know, hmm. you can't. You can't you know, how can you even... I mean, he thinks I have a beautiful voice. This is completely... <laughs> you know, he's, he's, his, his perception is warped. Um, Has been warped. 
There's, there's no way around it. There's no way around it. There's nothing you could do. You can't avoid it. No. <laughs> what's the um, so? What's the next thing to come out? What's the next book coming out? Well, I have a plan, and in and it has to do with an exhibition. I have a book that is currently called Brooklyn Chronicle, and it's related to time. There, it's there are pictures I made in the 1990s, which. I'm thinking about as a pre-9-11 Brooklyn. You know, what did Brooklyn look like before? And, you know, what happens right after it is the gentrification, et cetera, et cetera. There's none of that, none from 1999. But it's also a summing up, and these are, these are photographs that could have been in one of the seven books that were published of the 90s work, but all juxtaposed. It's always pictures... And there were 10 chapters. It's made like a decade. And it's always two-page spread. Not always. What, did I, what am I saying? Each chapter is punctuated by a single picture. But the the body of each chapter are two-page spreads, always juxtaposing uh, one body of work with another. So none of them ever appeared in a book. But they could have if they fit. They just didn't mm-hmm. fit. Yeah. So there's that. We, we uh, jumped over, uh, actually, in the Vale of Kashmir. Oh. Yeah, you have a, a show and a book release coming up. Yeah, yeah. the show's at the Stephen uh, Kasher Gallery, and uh, we're releasing the book, and fingers crossed it'll be here in time, the hardcover version of The Waters of Our Time, and they're going to be available for a signature, <laughs> and, um, because, you know, who wants to buy a photograph? But yeah, In the Vale of Kashmir, which is a really personal work, I had to write something for the for the New York Times, uh, October 11th, uh, it's coming out. I've avoided putting into words, you know, why the, you know, so I want the pictures to answer the why. But I had to say, they they said, you know, what, when, why, and hmm. so I had to answer these questions, and I, and I did it. But it's, you know, I, I'm very interested in, in men and in male sexuality. And the book is not overtly sexual, but it is overtly male. It's male through and through. And it's uh, yeah. all photographs made in a place called the Veil vale of Kashmir, which is a, a small section of Prospect Park that just like, you know, the way the world works, uh, coincidentally, the after all these years, after minimally five decades of being a place where men could go to meet and uh, form a community, uh, especially gay men uh, or men interested, men who don't identify as being gay but want to spend time with gay men, go. Uh, the city is destroying it. And uh, what do they call it? I can't even use the words they use for it because I, I find it offensive. But they're mm-hmm. changing the the use of the park, of that part of the park. I, they even use the word like reclaiming reclaiming as if uh, people were building houses on it or something. But anyway, it was uh, three and a half years. A lot of what I do last, I have a cutoff. Three and a half years is what I consider a full full amount of time. I've done something shorter and obviously some things longer. But um, it's, it's a book of portraits and landscapes. Yeah, we haven't um, we haven't talked about everything. Of course, uh, there's a lot of books. Your bibliography and your biography are, are quite long, uh, but we will link to your website, thomasroma.com, uh, and you and you can be followed on Twitter 
<laughs> the, if you recognize me. <laughs> the Twitter is at, is it at Thomas Roma? Thomas Roma Photo. Thomas Roma Photo, right. Kai, did you, were there any follow-ups that you had? Well, we, the one, uh, I think, important chapter we hinted at was the camera making. So oh. we have, we can't skip over that, is that when you said that the cover of The Waters of Our Times has a photograph from your very first roll of film, it's what, the very first roll of film you made with the first camera you built for yeah. yourself at Pratt Institute. So, uh, and then from there you've continued on, and a lot of photographers who are listening to this are looking at magazines, thinking of new gear to buy and everything, but you made this early decision to, you know, for better or for worse, to make your own cameras. Obviously, I think for the better, but maybe someone would disagree. And have used them all all along. And this one camera you've been using now since 1990 or 91, the Johnny. Yeah. And also, I think kind of remarkable is the fact that the same lens, you know, the same focal length lens for all these years, too. And you look at the variety of the photographs in the book, you know, the some things very close, some things far away, architecture, portraits, all of these things. And yet, you know, using the plastic nature of the medium and the fact that you can manipulate this one camera to do all these different things, you want to just talk about how you were, you came up with this idea in the first place and, and stayed with it. The only reason for me to comment about the uh, how I came up with the idea in the first place is because it was a bad idea. And, and it was. Mm-hmm. And I am uh, an advocate for action. You know, do things. And I'm, I'm especially um, beating the drum for doing things that you're not good at and for making decisions that very early on you know were wrong, but you do it anyway. So I, I saw a, a book by a Versailles Photographs, Focal Press book, Camera in Paris. And is it my camera in Paris? It's right behind me, but it's one of those two. And in the old days, photo books had the technical information written in them. In fact, Found in Brooklyn has the technical information in it. And I, I lifted the language from Tchaikovsky's uh, book, <laughs> uh, his own book. You could see if you compare the books. I use the same language. But anyway, in the book, it said to use a six by nine centimeter camera. And uh, my heroes, like you know Gary and Lee, were using Leicas with a 35 millimeter lens. So I wanted a, I did the math and I figured out I need a 75 millimeter lens. And there were no cameras that had that, no hand-holdable cameras. So I wanted it hand-holdable, portable. So I, I got the idea of using a roll film holder, which is a long story how I even knew about it. Roll film holder from a larger camera, a Mamiya press camera, and then putting uh, a 75 or a 3-inch lens on it to or, or a 65 to make a 28 millimeter field of view but it all came the inspiration came from hot rodding you know with a hot rod what you do is you take uh, a small car like a, a model a ford or a model t ford and you put a giant engine like let's say from a, a ford galaxy you put the big engine in the small car and it, it goes very fast so i thought i'll take the parts on the big car, get rid of everything in the middle and build my own body that would be very lightweight and and only, most of these other cameras do many things. I wanted a camera to do one thing. When I So I set off to do it and I, I thought I did a great job and it was not only bad, it was way off. 
I mean, <laughs> everything was wrong. It was ridiculous. But I was I stuck with it and I modified it to the point where it worked. And uh, with those pictures, I got uh, the New York State Council for the Art Grant, which got some publicity. And then other people wanted it. And that's how I, when I left the job at Pratt, I thought I could make a living because everyone wanted one of these things. And then blah, blah, blah. The rest is drunk history. (laughs) 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 Which is my other preoccupation. (laughs) Um, But I, I must say... I have been accused of having slight, slight, I mean, <laughs> minuscule case of OCD. And I i want this camera to do everything. I want to look at the camera and I want to say, you see where I brought you last time? <laughs> I did it. We, you know, we did it. I, and I want, and I, I want to stick to it. And you see, I also believe that the only difference between being alive and being dead is when you're dead, you don't change anymore. <laughs> that we have an obligation to our, to live our lives fully, which means to, to change, which I think translates into saying yes. You have to say yes to things. Saying no only means it stays the same. Saying yes, you know, anything could happen, right? So then the, the big question is why why change so with with my photographs i look at my photographs and if they're not doing something i need them to do then i'll change so so far i've never had photographs that i looked at and thought you know what this picture isn't any good but it would have been good if it was in color no when my pictures suck Color can't help. All the colors in the world are not going to make my bad pictures better. I look at my pictures and I think, well, if only the lens was a longer focal length. I, I don't have any, when the pictures are bad, the focal length you know, has nothing to do with it. It means that I should have been closer. It means that I was a coward or, or reluctant. Or, you know, my mother always said, he who hesitates is lost. And you know what? I still still hesitate and it tortures me mm-hmm. when I'm not quick enough or slow enough or something it's because why didn't I wait more it's because I hesitated I didn't believe that I could stretch it out wait a little longer for someone to show something of themselves or go or go quicker I never needed a wider angle lens I never did I, I like other people's photographs with wide angle lenses but my pictures aren't bad because the lens is too long. So although I believe I must change, I also think, you know, I'm, I'm philosophically, I'm against promiscuity. I don't, I just, I think it's a mistake. I think what you have to do is be loyal to the values that, you know, got you to a certain place and then, and then be quick to abandon it if they weren't loyal to you, you know, if you have to move on. I think that's a great place to end. Well, thank you, Tom, for giving us a, a lot of your time today. Uh, when are, when are you going to actually record this? <laughs> that's right. Oh, that yeah, yeah. We're we're going to record this. This is the right? rehearsal, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have prepared scripts for everybody now. <laughs> Thanks, Guy. Thank you.
Now I have to see what the Versailles. I always get it wrong. Is it Cameron Paris or my Cameron Paris? It's right here. All right, let's answer it. Go ahead, say it into the microphone. Camera in Paris. All right. All right. Go- Goodbye, everyone. Well, that's it for season one of The Photo Show. In case you were wondering, during the intro, Tom Roma and I were talking about these mini cameraless drones we purchased at the Photo Expo uh, just recently in New York City. Uh, So now that I have season one behind me, I realize that when I'm in school teaching at Mercer County Community College, it is very difficult for me to stay on this um, one episode a week schedule. So the photo show will be moving to once every two to three weeks. But you don't have to worry about the drop dates because you can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. All those links are on thephotoshow.org. And then your podcast listening device or however you listen to the show will be automatically updated. So I'll talk to you soon. Bye, everyone. (laughs) 